Welcome to the first episode of the Brighter Futures with Chloro podcast. In the debut episode, we spoke with Alison Gordon, the founder of Feed for Thought, a black soldier fly dog food alternative available across Australia. It not only helps nourish dogs, but also assists in saving the planet one meal at a time. Enjoy listening to this fascinating story. Uh, so firstly, welcome, Alison, to today's show uh, on Chloro, the Brighter Futures podcast. An absolute pleasure to have you. Uh, for those that you don't know, Alison is from Feed for Thought, which is based in, is Canberra, is that correct, or Melbourne? Yeah, it's based in Canberra. Yeah, beautiful. And it's it's in the sort of uh, pet um, food market and uh, it, it's using black soldier fly. So we'll dive more into that. But I guess I wanted to start out, I know you've sort of, in your, your previous sort of line of work, you were based in Antarctica. I just wanted to touch base on, on what you were doing in there or what were you doing there? Well, thanks, Ben. Um, I'm really glad to to join you and uh, and be on your podcast. And yeah, you're absolutely right. My the, the vision for Feed for Thought came from my time spent working in Antarctica and the Arctic. And I've done that over the course of uh, eight summers, um, respective summers in the north and south, uh, you know, which is not a lot of time, but it was enough time to really start to to witness the changes in the environment and the changes to some of the ecosystem as well. Um, and I'll give you a really quick example. Um, I'm not I'm not a penguinologist or a marine biologist, but I was working with plenty of uh, experts in that field. And what we were seeing was uh, the penguin colonies and the the density of penguins of particular species were moving even over the course of that eight years and they were moving because their food source was moving and their food source was moving because the ice was changing um, so you just get these second and third order effects that you could start to see and yes there was changes in glaciers but you know you've got to use really scientific uh, instruments to to measure that accurately and and arguably the glaciers always you know, ebbing and flowing. Um, so, you know, that does require uh, a lot of really sp- uh, specific uh, instrumentation, which, which you know, the, the scientists all throughout Antarctica and, and indeed Greenland are doing. They've got some really incredible data, but that's not what I was doing down there. So the effects that I was seeing, you know, with my own eyes were based on, um, you know, other other tangible and noticeable things and another one was you know the main main place I was operating was on the Antarctic Peninsula which has I suppose the most um, accessible land uh, in Antarctica and uh, the it's it's slightly warmer than other parts of Antarctica as well and with just a slight increase in the mean temperature over summer we're seeing more precipitation falling as rain where previously the temperature had been slightly cooler and so the precipitation was more commonly falling as snow. And that doesn't seem to you know, have too much of an effect, except if you're a baby penguin, a penguin chick, and you, do, you have a down feather coat rather than waterproof adult feathers. If there's rain, it sort of seeps onto their down rather than snow, which they can shake off. And that meant, you know, if they got wet and then there was a cold snap the next day, there was more penguins dying, like a higher more morbidity rate in the penguins because they weren't waterproof enough to uh, to deal with the rain rather than snow. So these little things uh, were, were really having an impact um, on the, the beautiful wilderness that I was seeing. And uh, I was privileged enough to be traveling with some remarkable people and working down there with um, incredible ambassadors that just wanted to conserve and bring this place 
to life um, or to to educate others around the, the life that was in it. And, you know, having this captive audience of, of people that were inspired and wanted to give Antarctica a voice was, was really humbling. So, um, you know, desperately in love with it and wanting to protect it, I thought, what can I do? What can I do in my home life to help preserve uh, the the beauty and wilderness I was seeing in Antarctica. And uh, I'm not naive enough to think that you actually have to go to Antarctica to care about this. Of, of course, you know, people are seeing climate changes everywhere and, and a lot of people who haven't been to Antarctica are also just incredibly passionate and see what's going on and, and want to do something. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to do something. Antarctica just uh, gave me the encouragement I needed to actually start doing uh making some choices that I could really stand behind and know that I was I was doing all that I could uh, to reduce my footprint. And that's where the black soldier fly larvae came along. Yeah, because that's, I mean, eight years, it's a long period of being there for that period of time. You would see some really sort of sub very, very big changes, I should say. Uh, and then when you came back, I mean, this was eight years ago. When did you, when did you finish up being in Antarctica then? Uh, well, I haven't. It's just oh, because ongoing. Of COVID. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. I'll be okay. back there um, as, as soon as I can, uh, yeah. as soon as the travel restrictions lift. Um, yeah. I'll head back there and um, and probably only for you know a couple of months at a time, uh, but just enough to you know to to go and you know see these beautiful places and uh, and hopefully inspire others to to feel the same passion about the uh, the wild beauty down there. So, so then you were saying black soldier flies is what you're using with your products. How did you angle in or, or narrow down on, on that particular thing? I know everyone preaches about the, the farming of black soldier flies is really quite sustainable and the, the sort of energy involved in sort of getting them up and going is substantially less as opposed to other sorts of forms of, of feed or even just food that people want to eat. How did you decide or how are you introduced to black soldier flies? Great question, Ben. So as part of my... Uh, time in Antarctica, I started to educate myself a little more about what uh, what other companies globally were doing to try and do better. Because I thought, you know, I, I, I do want to do better. What, what companies can I support? How can I um, speak with my money effectively? Like what, what can I do every day that will support innovative businesses that will start to change the way we live and, and live more harmoniously with our environment. Uh, so in doing so, I just I saw some companies in Africa and in Europe that were farming black soldier flies. And then the next question was, well, what are they doing with them? What products are they turning them into? Um, so the first step for me was to to realize that they were a really uh, a really good solution to two problems that are quite prolific here in Australia. And one was a was a protein problem. Um, you know, we have some of the most incredible farmers here and a lot of them are, are employing um, some inc some really innovative tools to farm more sustainably uh, so that was you know that that's been really encouraging to see what sort of farming practices we have here uh, however the amount of protein that we consume as a global population is still rather unsustainable so we still do have uh, quite a protein problem. And we also have a waste problem whereby approximately 10% of our greenhouse gases are still coming from decomposing organic matter and landfill. Uh, and that is that is simply because a, about a third of the food that we grow is, is wasted. Um, so the black soldier fly larvae solved 
two of those problems. Firstly, um, you can feed the black soldier fly larvae organic organic matter, organic waste, thus diverting it from landfill. And secondly, it is a far more sustainable protein. So I was just a little enamored by this environmental warrior uh, and thought hey, maybe that's that's what I can do. That can be an impact I can have. And ultimately it's not really an impact unless it, it does something useful. So I really wanted to find out what I could do with it. Uh, and that's where a little further research uh, showed me that there was, again, companies in uh, in the UK and Europe and, and North America that were using the black soldier fly uh, as the protein source in pet food. Uh, I'm not a vet by, by background, but I'm fortunate enough to have one on, <laughs> on standby. And we did about two years of research, uh, my vet and I, and uh, we worked out what sort of nutritional makeup the black soldier fly had and how it was beneficial to, to pets and in what way we could use it. And of course it changes, their nutritional composition changes based on the substrate or what food they eat. So we did a lot of experimentation with that and, um, and eventually started working. Um, we had our own pilot farm to really sort of learn about it. And then we started working with uh, more established black soldier fly farmers in Australia uh, and did some more experimentation to, to really get the best the best protein outcome uh, for what we intended to use it for, which was which was pets, and I've started with dogs. So it was a really, um, a, you know, a really sort of science based uh, approach to it. Um, but it's just uh, they're such incredible creatures, and there's a there's a few reasons why they are such a good fit for dogs and such a good fit for the planet. But um, I suppose from a from a planetary perspective. They, they're an interesting creature because as you know, their, their lifespan as a fly is, is about a week. Their lifespan as a larvae in their, in their um, pre-fly pre form is about six weeks, give or take. In that six weeks, they have to eat all their energy for both their larvae form and their, their week-long fly form before they become a fly, because as a fly, they don't have a functioning mouth. So they're not like a house fly that buzzes around and, you know, spreads germs on your food. They don't care about food when they're in fly form because they, they don't really eat. Um, they just want to procreate. So in larvae form, what that means is they have to consume voraciously to make up for the fact that they can't eat when they're a fly. And that's why they're such great food composters, because they have to eat a lot. So in that six weeks, they're consuming enormous amounts. Uh, and what they do is um, have, you know, a few properties, uh, nutritional properties that happen to be incredibly good for dogs. Um, they're naturally quite high in taurine, which is um, which is really important in dog food. They have some really, really, uh, really great uh, essential fatty acids and amino acids just naturally, and they constitute a whole protein. So, you know, they they have everything to make a complete protein. So instead of trying to, you know, balance different forms of meat in your pet's food that comes from different animals and, and trying to get that balance right, here you have a ready-made, complete, beautiful protein uh, that is incredibly sustainable. You don't need to cut down trees to um, make space for cows or chickens in order to feed them to your dog. You don't need to cut down trees in order to grow crops to feed the cows or the chickens to then form feed for your dog. You actually take wasted food 
and turn that into directly into more food that your dog can eat um, and eat really, really well and really healthily. And, uh, and you know, the, the results for the, the nutrition trials and the, the palatability trials on the dogs have been really, really, really outstanding. So it's a good source of protein. Yeah, because I think what I've heard is, is yeah, the volume these larvae can eat is is staggering. Like it's just they pretty much eat 24-7. And <clears throat> I mean, you're talking about the R&D stage that would have taken, what, roughly 12, two years? It was, about, it was, oh, about 18 months or two years. 18 months, yeah. And did you find there were certain, I guess, food profiles that you were using in that sort of development phase that really sort of clicked like a hooray moment? This is sort of what we've, what we've been looking for? Because I know when I talk about, you know, the food waste, there's lots of talk about, potentially in, in the, the brewing industry with a lot of grain and, and using that or just, you know, restaurants and hotels and getting rid of their food. Um, it, it, was there sort of a, a key component that you were looking at to sort of feed these these larvae? Yeah, there was a few different factors there, Ben. It was a really good question because, you know, when I was just learning, this is uh, early days and it's a little exposing for me to say this, but I thought, you know, coffee ground, ground coffee, this is going to be great because you have ready access to this from cafes all over the world. And the larvae ate it but they didn't grow particularly quickly. It was not an efficient conversion at all. And that's because it wasn't, there wasn't enough of a broad nutrition profile for the larvae in spent coffee grind. So it didn't kill them, but they, they mm. didn't thrive Just at all. Wasn't wasn't getting the right result and, and no, protein building yeah, nutritional so, value from it. Yeah, exactly. So it was a really good learning process. Um, and then another consideration for that, you know, in what to feed them was I wanted it to be really clean and consistent. So I need to be able to guarantee what then what the nutrition profile of the protein is so i can guarantee what the dog the results of the dog food uh so to do that i needed to feed them the same thing and i wanted it to be a a vegetarian only um diet and, and that's not because there was a lot of risk in what the larvae do with meat and in particular i suppose there's been a lot of great research around um, the uh, the properties, the fat properties in the larvae that diminish traces of things like E. coli and salmonella in the meat that they eat. So if the larvae eat um, uh, meat with E. coli or salmonella, uh, the, the traces of those bacteria in the larvae is, is, is gone once tested. So they, you know, some of the properties of them uh, are really uh, antibacterial, which is incredible, but I wanted to eliminate any risk of that. So we feed them only uh, vegetarian food. And what has been working really well is the spent grains um, from the brewing process and believe it or not, misshapen carrots. Gotcha. Yeah, because I mean, the potential for this, I mean, you look around at fruit and veg stores, the amount of wastage of just food just going off, like this is just as we talk about the potential to be a massive problem solving for, for the future and, and the educational component about it is people don't quite understand how much individuals waste on a good day um, let alone these massive scale supermarkets and restaurants and everything so i wanted to i guess touch on you know we're talking about pardon me um the, the sort of the focus on on the food and, and this is i guess aligned with, with the pet industry but what sort of regulatory challenges have been amounting whilst going through this because i know everywhere around the world there's different qualities and processes and manufacturing standards that need to be hit in order to produce you know a high quality product in australia in particular and i'm not sure if you're looking at exporting or sending it overseas but what have been some of the real sort of i guess barriers but also things you've seen change since you've been going through this process that another great question and it's an interesting one because 
uh, in, I'll speak directly to the dog food industry because it's where I'm at at the moment. In Australia doesn't have uh, its own regulations per se for uh, for making dog food. We use uh, the American ones or the European ones. Uh, and they're the guides that most good pet food companies in Australia will adhere to. And so I, I made sure that we adhered to uh, the American guidelines in developing the pet food. And since I've started, um, they've actually, the European ones were already over this regulatory barrier, but the uh, American food regulations have now um, added black soldier fly larvae formally to their list of, um, it's provisional still, but their list of, in, of, of ingredients that be, can be included in dog food. So that's been a massive win. Uh, and that took a couple of years in, in the States for uh, their regula regulatory process to, to get through that. Um, but that's, you know, that means that I think we will start to see more of the larger multinational companies making these sorts of formulations and selling them in Australia as well. So I know I won't be alone in this space for long, um, but that mm. has has been one of the, the big regulatory changes that's happened fairly recently. Yeah, because I mean, that's that's the opportunity. And, and I know I, we'll touch on your product in a bit, but one of the big things is there's there's not a heap of me people doing this sort of black soldier fly uh, I can see in the future there's going to be a huge amount and that sort of I guess plays on that that demand supply so from a pricing point of view how do these sorts of things factor in for people wanting pet food because I mean realistically it, it is a new industry it's not the sort of the cheapest product but you're getting what you pay for like it, it's it's so great for your pet it's got all the nutritional values that, that you want and we sort of look at it from half the time people buy these things they have no idea what's in it on a good day but there's you know fundamental evidence showing that it's it's got all these qualities in it that for your pet, like over the past sort of 18 months, people, everyone I know has gotten a new pet, a new dog, a new, a new yeah. cat. The streets are just filled with them. So there's definitely a, a need for, you know, high quality pet food. So how is that the pricing side of it developing as well? Yeah, slowly. Um, that is certainly a, a factor and, and, and possibly a limiting one for, for a lot of people. And I, I'm, I'm really sympathetic to that. Uh, so yes, it's a much more expensive protein for two reasons. Firstly, it's not, um, there's no, I'm not using byproducts. I'm not using sort of what's left. Uh, this is a dedicated, you know, protein grown for a specific purpose um, using a specific substrate. So, you know, the, the fly farmer can use the leftovers from your woolies or your coals, what the food that they throw out, and they can use that um to grow flies for other purposes but for for dog food where i really need it to be consistent and i need it to be clean you know that they're, they're fed a very specific diet so there is a bit of fidelity around it and because uh, the other reason that it's um quite expensive is that it is a nascent industry in australia um there's a few uh black soldier fly larvae growers now um but it's a small community and they are facing challenges of scale as well. It, it's, and it needs an incredible amount of investment to scale up that facility. And, and there's a few of them doing it, mine included, my farmer included, uh, but it takes time. And until they're at huge scale, then they can't produce the protein with the same sort of um, economies of scale that, that has price efficiencies. So it will happen in time. Um, but for now, uh, yep, it is a it is more expensive protein. But like you said, you get what you pay for, and um, it is it is 
you know, scientifically proven to be more digestible than chicken meal. Um, so, you know, you are getting a really digestible quality protein made in Australia in a, in a factory that is, you know, meets all the regulatory requirements uh, using, and again, really quality Australian ingredients. So it is out of the price range for some, um, but for those who have the luxury to make that choice, you know, to, to make a choice that can just make you feel really good about what they're doing, uh, then it's available to them now. Whereas, you know, six months ago, it wasn't. There wasn't that choice for um, a sustainable option for your dog. Yeah, and and I think that's the thing. It, it's such a, a new and emer- well, I don't want to say new because even the, the, the concept of eating insects, I mean, this is more from a, yeah. a person point of view, it's been around for hundreds of years. It's just sort of, again, stigmas and misinformation or misinformation really that it's sort of, it's such a, a an old or weird thing, but it really, it's it's been around for, for such a long time, and um, I mean that's going to be one of the big things. How how do you help, or, or how have you been managing expectations of trying to convert, or not try and get people shifting to think this is a potential for for dog feed? Because I mean, maybe maybe it's a bit easier in this industry with pets because. Again, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't think I've ever really looked at what's in my, my pet food, but most owners will do whatever they can to make sure their pet's living their best life. Um, I think that's just a, a normal thing, especially with dogs. Um, but how have you been negotiating or, or managing people's expectations, like the branding, the, the imaging, the messaging? How are you sort of getting around that? Great question. Uh, we did a we did a lot of markets market research on it before we launched, just so we knew, you know, how we were going to. Um, how people were going to feel good about what they were choosing to do because rightly so their most important and what the market research revealed was the most important factor is and should be the dog's health you know you need to look after your, the welfare of your animals and um so that always had to come first and remarkably what we found was that if you look at what what people are searching on google it can be really quite revealing no one it's not true only around 20 people per month in all of Australia are searching for, you know, the words sustainable dog food. It's just not, it's not something that's on their radar. It's not to say that people don't want to do it or aren't inspired by the idea. It's just not something that they're thinking of. They're not, you know, sustainability has crept into so many places in our lives. You know, everyone knows what a keep cup is now. No one wants to use single-use plastic in their shopping bags. A lot of people have heard of really great companies like Zero Co. and and Who Gives a Crap and the toilet paper they're making. Like mm. those areas, people now have an education about sustainability. Once upon a time, they probably didn't. Dog food is those once upon a time, they probably didn't areas where it's just not on people's radar yet. So that education piece has um, has been a real focus. Uh, but what I'm really, um, really, I suppose, encouraged by is that every time I take the time to talk about why this is so good for dogs and why it makes, you know, why it's such a good choice for the planet, you know, and introduce the idea of the circular economy, which I think is, is you know, not a, not a particularly uh, well understood concept, then the feedback I get is that people go, oh, that makes so much sense. Of course we should feed our dogs something that is amazing for them, great for their gut health, great for their coats, uh, highly digestible, low allergenic, and it has the bonus of being really good for the planet, far more so than than other things that we're feeding it. So, yes, it makes sense. Um, it's just going to take a little while 
to, to put it on people's radar. So thanks for having me on this podcast so I can do just Absolute, that. absolute pleasure. Because I, I think that's one of the things that I'm noticing is, is the more you sort of dive into this world, there are so many people doing it. And not just from, from, from companies and people like yourself, but just the way the world is heading, you know, the communities, societies, politicians, there's this real drive for, for sustainability. I mean, all the talk at the moment about, you know, electric batteries and lithium and, and solar panels and, and renewable energy. But then like these, these sorts of things are, are everyday consumable items for, for so many people around the world. And it's just sort of, it really is just a matter of time to sort of see people consider these options but education and, and front of mind is, is such a such a big important thing for this and i, I want to know more about like i guess I, I love the branding it's so creative and, and the dogs i mean again i'm a sucker for a dog picture so <laughs> that that works really well um but w what's the what's the process of getting out there is it all digital it's all online or is it going to, to events and trade shows or is it um test like sending out products to, to vets and getting them doing it that way what's the sort of yeah the methodology behind that oh that's a big question and uh, another good one you're nailing them today <laughs> uh so you know going into this we didn't know what was going to what was going to really work we you know we'd done some market research and we'd found things like you know facebook was likely to be uh less receive less engagement than Instagram and Reddit was um, likely to be, you know, a, a place where we might find an audience that that could really relate to what we were trying to do. The market research showed that um, over 65s were typically, I don't want to generalize because there mm. are some really environmentally savvy, progressive over 65s over out there. Um, but there are some over 65s that, that the idea just didn't really resonate with as much. So we had some data to go by uh, and um we have tried a few different things um instagram certainly works more than facebook um for sure but there are more sort of you know community groups on facebook that uh get better engagement than individuals so that's that's been a really nice learning um so you know there are really passionate incredible communities out there that like me get really excited when they see a product that makes sense um, so finding those people has been good, but social media has not um, has not been the only avenue. And I think if it was the only thing we focused on, we wouldn't we wouldn't be doing um, as well as we are. Uh, so yes, now that COVID restrictions are easing, we have been um, attending some events. And again, like the the real beauty and the the real benefit of the, of that is you actually get to have a conversation with someone. And that's where the change happens. You know, I can write social media posts till the, till the cows come home, but that, you know, it doesn't replace having that engagement. Um, so yes, events have been, have been really great. Um, some veterinary clinics have also been really, really responsive. And that's important because, um, you know, people trust their vets, you know, they trust their vets far more than they trust you know, a product on a, on a shelf that says it's good because all the products say they're good. The terrible marketing strategy to go out and say, well, this is a pretty average product, actually. Exactly. Not going to move that way. No. <laughs> so vets have been really important and I've met some absolutely fabulous ones. Um, and, you know, small, um, I've noticed the small retailers that have, um, have engagement with their community have been um, really helpful as well. So, you know, independent places that that take the time to explain the product. 
um, that's key and that's what it absolutely needs. Um, it, it sort of sadly, but also um, it is it is what it is. It 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 needs it needs a bit of an explanation as to why it's good because there's some people do still have all the 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 yuck factor. Oh my dog, my dog's not going to like insects. Actually, it probably eats insects when you're not looking all the time. Yeah, and uh, considering what dogs usually do, you know, just going down to the park and sniffing at things they shouldn't be, you know, it's it's not the sort of most uh, risque thing you can imagine a, a dog doing. And um, yeah, you also have to show it to them because people imagine some people imagine that you're literally just feeding dead flies to your dog. Mm. That is not everyone. That is not the case. Yeah, it, it's biggies. <laughs> it's, it's just looks cool. like biscuit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's just it has the potential to be so good. I mean, I get I get so excited by all this stuff, and especially not only in Australia but but around the world. Um, it's it's focusing on on dogs at the moment, and you might not want to give too much away. But have you been looking at other sorts of avenues or even different insects potentially that have sort yeah, of nutritional values? Yeah, I get asked about cats all the time. Yeah, they're being left out. They are being left out, and they're a little trickier, to be honest. Um, yeah. but that's not to say then they're beautiful worthy animals and uh we'll look at it for sure yeah they're a bit more bit more fussy from the cats that at least i've seen they're, they're a bit more yeah um structured i know dogs love cat food because it apparently tastes better uh well that's at least what i've been told by vets that's why we always have to keep our cat food at a higher level because otherwise the dog goes and gets <laughs> third and fourth servings um but other insects wise i mean it's it's the focus on, on black soldier flies and, and the process it's all done in australia correct you, all your your whole facility yeah gotcha is there other sorts of insects at all that are sort of tweaking interest or just seeing what's happening around the world is anything else that's sort of tweaking your um, imagination i haven't included anything else as yet i love what's going on with crickets um but they're really gaining traction in the human space um and so maybe that would that would be a good thing because then they could be um you know palatability with humans is probably more likely to equal palatability, perceived palatability for humans of their of their dogs. So it's probably a bit of an easier sell, to be honest. Um, but they they don't have quite the same um, impact in that they they can't um, they can't consume the amount of unused unused food that the black soldier fly larvae can. So I feel like I get the biggest bang for my buck. Yeah. That's not to say there aren't other sources that I would consider there absolutely are mealworms uh, I think again um, also do really good job and have have a pretty good nutrition profile so in the future yeah I think so yeah good because uh, I mean the first introduction I got to, to black soldier fly was was looking at it from a feed point of view and not as a as a final product so selling it to massive cattle stations around the world or especially in europe and selling them on massive scales because just feed it to, to cows and chickens and then you know they're digesting it and then the quality of meat gets better but if you take out that potential and just go you know straight to, to dog food or hypothetically i don't think anywhere in the world is approved for human consumption of black soldier flies i don't think yet but watch this space uh... exactly yes yeah i know i know the crickets the cricket space is sort of yeah getting some real legs behind it or hops yeah. behind it uh, which is is exciting because there's a whole host of of insects that, again, have the potential to be used in so many different different arrays, and and yeah, the sustainability of them is just phenomenal. Uh, your your factory, I'm curious about it. So is is it all sort of you say it's the the, the seven day, but it's a, a six week process for the actual larvae. What's the, the the range of time to to get it from from feeding the food to to 
not i guess potential oh yeah finished product would probably be the, the way to put it from start from from feeding it the, the all the waste to then having it packed up in a shelf ready to go that that's an interesting question and um i just want to first acknowledge that it's uh it's the great work of future green solutions over in western australia that's supplying my um my meal uh so the process is you know yeah about six weeks feeding it um and then the the mealing process doesn't take very long from there on in so once they've reached the optimal size and nutrition value which is just before they sort of go into hibernation it's not quite the right term but effectively hibernation to be on the fly so a little bit before then um they would uh, euthanize them um, as humanely as possible of course and then they defat them now this is important for two reasons because naturally they have a slightly higher fat content than what is optimal for dog food so they're defatted and then they're mealed into a, a flour substance. So you still get the whole protein, but the only way it will go into the manufacturer's um, machines to turn into dog food is if it's mealed. So you take the fat out, turn it into flour, and then later on add the right amount of fat back in. And that that whole process doesn't take particularly long, but what is taking a long time is, is growing enough of the protein um, in the sort of the smaller scale uh, farm that we have at the moment to um, to put it into a dog a dog food manufacturing run of a decent size. So to get the amount of protein at the moment, it's taking several months. But of course, when we when that that farm scales, uh, that will be much quicker process. Um, and you know that 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 farm is providing a lot of other um, a lot of other products, and there's been particularly um, some great work done all around Australia and not specifically there, but all around Australia in, in the aqua feed industry as well, which is another great use for, for the black soldier fly larvae. So, you know, there's a lot of utility and you can do a lot with them. Uh, I'm just lucky enough to have some, some really great ones for dog food. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. And, and I mean, for, for people that are new and, and familiar, and I'm hoping we've got some people that have, again, never heard this before and have gone, wow, this is quite a revolutionary sort of concept, or not even concept, reality. Um, what, what have been the biggest sort of headaches or, or challenges going through this whole process? Is it for, for the manufacturing or is it really just the stigma and, and changing perceptions and getting pet owners to go, you know, this is a great alternative? Where, where are the, the main barriers? Look, the main barrier at the moment, I'll speak in the, in the present, the main barrier at the moment is, is getting it in front of people and, and presenting it as a choice that they can make, um, which comes with an education process. So um, they're not going to make the choice unless they, they see the benefits of it. Um, so that is my biggest challenge at the moment. But, you know, if you'd asked me 12 months ago what my biggest challenge was, it absolutely would have been finding a manufacturer. It's a bit of a David and Goliath battle uh, simply because most of the places that make dog food in Australia are owned by big multinational companies. Ultimately, um, you know, I won't name them. They're, they're fine companies. They just, they really dominate the market and they weren't really interested in taking on someone that was going to do a small run and need a bit of research and development because that cost them money um, using a novel protein that they didn't know how how it would react in their machines so you know it might have clogged up their machines and cost them more money um, and so there was a lot of barriers and effectively i was going to always going to be competition so there was a lot of barriers to finding 
someone to work with me in order to manufacture this. And I was so lucky to get some great consultants on board and, um, you know, huge, huge, huge shout out to those, those that got me there uh, and find an independent manufacturer again over in Western Australia, uh, this powerhouse of a woman uh, who's been manufacturing dog food for over well over 30 years and just, you know, liked the idea of doing something for good. Um, so was willing to put in time and money to do that R&D with me and to to test and adjust the formulation and to make sure it worked in their machines. Um, so to find someone like that took a long time but was so absolutely worthwhile and, and um, you know, we're both really proud of the of the product and, and how much work's gone into to getting it just right. So the manufacturing was a huge process. And another, another interesting one was um, packaging. So, you know, it, it would be so hypocritical of me to, to try and do this amazing, sustainable, wonderful dog food and then just put it in plastic. Yeah, uh, some sort so of throwaway sort of yeah. packaging. Yeah. yeah. So I worked really hard to try and find something that was going to maintain the integrity and the shelf life of the food and make it food safe, but also that wasn't just single-use plastic. And in the small scale, so if I've got a one kilo bag, that is a completely compostable bag and, and Australia's sort of got that technology to make compostable bags in the smaller sizes. In the bigger sizes, such as the five kilo, um, we just, we just, we're not there. Um, the, that's not to say people aren't working exceptionally hard. They are. The packaging industry knows where it needs to go and, and they're working hard on it. So the best I could do with a five kilo bag is make it recyclable, which it is. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. And I really look forward to the day where we can have a compostable five kilo bag as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was a that was a really a challenge I wasn't expecting. I thought, no, no, we've got this covered. You know, surely it's the year 2020, 2021. Surely we've got really compostable bags out there, and the food safe ones, they just they're not there yet. Yeah, but it's again, it's that that tailwind. There's this this overwhelming sort of push just from everyone wanting this sort of these 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 beneficial and positive changes. So this is this has been absolutely awesome. I think. Um, it's just such a such a fascinating place and it looks like this next sort of 12 months is going to present some um some real good fun for you and and, and um feed for thought so not super exciting and hopefully you can get back to antarctica soon and see how that's all, all traveling but seems like you'll be busy with uh with what you're working on so no that's awesome did you have anything else you wanted to i guess shout out before we sort of finish it up Ah, oh, so I just i am really really um encouraged and humbled by the community and, and and the people that just want to support local products and support Australian made and support small startups. Um, and, and for everyone who's who's done that and who might be listening to this, thank you. Please keep it up. The industry needs that. It, it needs the support. And it it also, um, you know, the, the whole insect industry needs incredibly progressive thinkers that are willing to see the benefit. And, and what I hope people take away from this is that you know, there is choice out there. They can get excited about, you know, picking up their dog food and thinking, yep, I'm literally saving the planet by eating, with my dog eating this food. And I, I just hope they're happy and excited like I am. Yeah, yeah. No, beautiful, beautiful words. words. I, it's it's fantastic, fantastic way to sort of wrap it all up. So thank you so much for that, Alison. It's a pleasure. I can't wait to get you on again and see what's been happening. Uh, when you get, get, yeah, yeah. On. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah, fantastic. I'll see you out there, Ben. Thank you so much. Thanks.